Welcome to Policed in Ireland, the podcast that seeks to capture the experiences people have with the police. I'm Dr. Vicky Conway, and I'm passionate about listening to people from all different walks of life about how they experience our police on Garda Síochána. It says prisoner asleep all okay, prisoner asleep all okay, prisoner asleep all okay. And then I remember at the bottom of the custody record, it, there was a gap of like two to five minutes. Mm. And then apparently a bangardie went to check on Terence. And apparently when she opened the door, Terence was sitting on the floor hanging. This is part two of the episode where we're listening to the family of Terence Wheelock, a 20 year old son, father, brother and friend who died on the 16th of September 2005. In the first part, we heard from his family about the kind man Terence was and about what happened to him in June 2005. We heard about the questions the family have about his treatment by Gardaí. In this part, we're going to hear from his siblings Orla and Sammy about the various investigations that have been conducted into his death, as well as how they as a family have been treated since his death by the Gardaí. Deaths like this are, quite thankfully, infrequent in Ireland. Usually one to two people die in police custody annually, whereas that figure could be more like 15 in England and Wales. Not surprisingly, they have to be investigated. Human rights law is very important here. Article 2 of the Convention of the Human Rights confirms your right to life. Not only does this mean that there are very few circumstances where the state can take your life, it also means they have an active duty to protect your life. And if there is state involvement in your death, then there must be an independent effective investigation. In Ireland, these independent investigations are conducted primarily by the Garda Síochána Ombudsman Commission when it's the guards that are involved. As we'll hear in a moment, This hadn't actually been created when Terence died, so in fact, the initial investigation was an internal Garda one. I believe it came back that the police, like, you have police investigating police here. (laughs) So we had no faith in that anyway. And of course they came back saying Terence done this to himself, usually responsible for his own death. Only one attempt to contact the Wheelock family was made in the course of this investigation. The tour de June, the tour de fort de June was two um, liaison officers knocked at the door. They were nice, nice girls, but they were the last people we wanted to see, to be honest. We, mm. we didn't want to talk to them. You know, you're looking at your brother, son, lying there. He went out perfectly healthy that morning, looking at him fighting for his life. You're assuming this happened in their hands. You don't want to be dealing with these people. They're the last faces you want to see. So that internal investigation came to a conclusion of suicide without ever having spoken to the family? Yeah. Okay. Every time someone dies in unnatural or suspicious circumstances, the coroner for that region will hold an inquest. The function of the inquest is to determine who died, when, where, and in what circumstances. In a case such as this, the inquest verdict provides the official state determination on whether the death was by suicide, by unlawful means, by natural causes and so on. Often the inquests themselves are quite short, sombre hearings, which confirm what is known. 
but sometimes they're more contested and involve the presentation and questioning of evidence. There are a lot of problems with our inquest laws and procedures, certainly as they were at this time. Many have argued that they're not in compliance with the obligations under Article 2 of the European Convention. Some of these problems emerge for the Wheelocks. So there were seven jurors on the day. None of our independents were allowed in court. I remember one day in the courts, our solicitor requested Terence's clothes to be brought in. And it was um, a bit of a delay that day, you know, we all wear the clothes, they're out in Black Rock, etc. Anyway, they went and got the clothes, the police or whatever, came into court with them in a brown paper bag and they weren't allowed out in court, so they were never produced in court. No one had seen them clothes. No jurors seen them to see the blood on them, to make their, their minds up, you know. So that wasn't allowed to happen. So we had like, Terence had two postmortems done. One was independent and the other was the stapetologist here. Mary Cassidy gave evidence in court. And I do recall her saying regarding photographs, she was looking at photographs of Terence's body that the, the clinical photographer would have took in the hospital at the time. And they would have been a day when Terence's only in a day. And she couldn't really make out the pictures. The police had given her them photographs. But when Ursula gave her once to her La Clara tour, and she recorded a death by suicide on her investigation, but she couldn't explain some marks on Terence's body. A guy came to the coroner's court, we don't know him, never heard of him, but he was there and he gave evidence of that day. He states that he was standing on the boardwalk with a few other people. Oh. And the police flew up in a van and scuffled them into the van, brought them to Store Street Police Station. And he says he himself like he was standing, they were standing in the area of the front desk area that they could have just walked back out the door of the station that day. Um, he does recall, he said, a bangardy came running, we need a knife, prisoner hanging. And he said that day he believed it was very staged, that he was just arrested to witness that bangardy saying that. Um, and he said that at the coroner's court? Oh yeah, yeah, he said that there, that day. And had you heard that before? Never. So apparently it makes us think, oh, they went, arrested a few people so they could witness the Vanguard saying we need a knife or something, a uh, prisoner hanging. I remember the Vanguardian question in the coroner's court that apparently found Terence. All their timings was wrong that day. Uh, when she was questioned, she was very agitated. And when her barrister was asking her questions, she kept tugging at her collar and saying, like, coroner, coroner, you know, to cut the question short, like, stop him questioning her. She was young, like, she was only young, 20, in her early 20s. 
Anyway, the verdict that day was 3-4. So we were told not to expect much that day and we were delighted with the outcome. Yeah, three people out of them four, almost half, believed Terence was harmed that day from what they just had heard and witnessed in court, even though there was no independence allowed or Terence's clothes were, weren't allowed to be produced, they felt something wasn't right with Terence and that he wasn't responsible for his, de- his own debt. And had any of you given evidence at the coroner's court? No, none of us spoke. I just, I always remember my dad just, because he had to identify Terence when he died and he had to just stand up and say, this is... This was my son, Terence Wheelock. Yeah. So there's something really striking there that without any of you having to suggest it, you know, half of, nearly half that jury had those concerns <laughs> themselves. Absolutely. Like none of us gave it air input, air thoughts on what happened Terence and almost half. So you are very happy with that outcome. Yeah. The Garda Síochána Ombudsman Commission was created two years after Terence died. This came from findings that the previous system, which always involved Gardaí investigating Gardaí, was insufficient to deal with something as serious as the corruption seen in Donegal through the Mars Tribunal. That context is significant. The Mars Tribunal had identified an endemic issue in attempting to have Gardaí tell the truth. What it encountered is often called the Blue Wall of Silence, whereby police, in accordance with cop culture, don't report each other's wrongdoing. Supporting and standing up for each other is essential. When questioned on why he lied to the tribunal, one Garda told Justice Morris, you don't hang your own. The national discourse on policing and accountability at that time was, to my mind, very difficult, if not toxic. The creation of this independent body had been fought and challenged for a long time by police bodies and some politicians. Personally, I think it's important to remember just how fraught this all was at the time of Terence's death. GSOC had independent staff and despite the passage of time, in 2007 they conducted an inquiry into Terence's death. Any GSOC investigation seeks to determine whether a Garda breached either criminal law or Garda codes of discipline. So they don't examine an incident holistically, they assess whether individual Garda did wrong. GSOC's investigation came to a number of conclusions, including that there was no credible evidence that Terence was mistreated in any way during his detention at Store Street, that systemic failures and the lack of clear instruction led to the presence of a ligature suspension point in the cell, that a lack of clear instruction and process allowed Terence Wheelock to bring a ligature with him into the cell, and that the recording of details of the custody of Terence fell below appropriate standards. We're not happy with it at all. Terence's case was divorced in the public eye with the GSOC. Yeah. Um, what we've learned is <laughs> some of the people in GSOC are ex-police. Ex- so we've no faith in that either. If you read through the, the book of evidence uh, from GSOC's report, sorry, um, you see that like people, witnesses are telling the ombudsman they witnessed Terence being abused that morning, being rough treated. 
and like they found nothing wrong with the police, nothing wrong that Terence Wheelock was responsible for his own death. And Jewish G-Sock had his clothes all along and it's still, like, I'm still chasing that T-shirt and the cord of his bombs today. Although I received some of his items back a couple of weeks back there. Um, yeah. But that's over 10 years on from their investigation. Yeah. yeah. It's like, with regards to some of the clothes going missing, now, we all believe that they're holding on to a certain amount as, you know, for the certain amount of time, there were any, any DNA or trace evidence that's still left on the clothes. The longer they hold on to those clothes, they're supposedly gone missing. Yeah. That would deteriorate any trace evidence or DNA that was left on the clothes as to, on the day he was arrested. And that's what we all believe. They're just hiding it just to make sure that it would disappear. But we believe that they are guilty, as guilty as sin for what they did. Certainly, reading the report, one can see that many of the specific questions the family have are not directly answered. This is the last formal state investigation into Terence's death. The family could take the state to the European Court of Human Rights, potentially, but there are financial and procedural barriers, and that in itself is a very lengthy process. Instead, the family seek a public inquiry in Ireland to understand what happened to Terence. But one of the things that struck me most over the numerous meetings I had with the family is how much they minimise how they were treated after Terence's death. They believe and state they were harassed by Gardaí. But when they talk about it, they discuss it as something that proves Gardaí mistreated Terence, not as a problem in itself. It's hard listening to them talk about what happened not to wonder if we need justice for the Wheelocks as well as justice for Terence. There were moments when, um, if, say, I was going to the shop or my brothers were doing their own things, walking down the street, where the police would stop us and as soon as they would ask us our name, we would say Wheelock. Immediately they would be pulling us up, bouncing us off the wall, strip searching us, so to speak, uh, take, checking our pockets and then bring us down to police stations and stuff like that, just to completely full strip searches and then release us. You know, they were doing this constantly. And there were other times where there were guards on horses coming down through the avenue and they would be trotting the horses directly outside my mother's house all hours of the day, all hours of the morning. They were doing this. And then there were other moments where they were shining torches in through the window. Uh, you know, like uh, any time of the evening, they were just shining, looking in, they were completely harassing my parents. My mother and father just, they were at a loss as to why they were doing, just to completely harass us, to try and intimidate us, to try us to push us away from this case. But my brother Larry, who headed up the entire campaign for our family, he was... There's no way he was going to back down. He he wanted justice for my parents, specifically for my parents. Mm. They deserve justice. And that's why we still continue to get that to this day. I remember marching to a police station with this down to Star Street. 
And my little brothers are with me. My little brothers are always with me, right? always with me now. TD Gary Gannon again. And I remember one of the guards sticking his fingers up out the window of the people protesting outside. I don't really have a time frame for that. I don't know if it was a couple of months later or it was the anniversary later, but I remember someone sticking their fingers, or it was a guard, sticking their fingers up out the window of Star Street Guard Station. Um, I remember the video that went around and in the old school early version of the Nokia of, I think there was a horse up at that door, at the family's door on Summer Hill. Um, there was a video going on, a really badly cut video of kind of a lot of police going into the Wheelock's family home up on Summer Hill. I remember his brother, who we know as Lala and Larry, Larry Wheelock, who was an absolute giant who passed away last year. I remember him marching, constantly marching, constantly out, trying to mobilise the community around it. Gary actually attacked the family. Assaulted Terence's mother, Terence's father, Terence's two brothers and his pregnant sister. The harassment started basically the next day. Like I remember some family members were leaving the hospital and pleased to be sitting outside doing hanging gestures, stuff like that. It came to the weekend from when Terence, that happened Terence on Thursday. On the Saturday night they arrested my younger brother, Gavin, in a police van, drove him around different police stations, driving him mad. I remember Terence's friend knocking at the door. He didn't want to tell me, man, that, about Gavin. So he called me and he said, look, I don't want to say anything to your man, dad, but Gavin's after being arrested. And I panicked, you know. <laughs> so I ran to Store Street. Gavin was only a minor at the time. He's 16 going on 17. And I went to Store Street and like I was 18, so I could have gotten him. Mm. <laughs> And uh, I was so worried I went and they were like, no, we don't have Gavin Wheelock here, you know. Then they had me running around like I was going to Fitzgibbon, she Mountjoy with my brother. While your other brother's critical in hospital. Two days critical in hospital, yeah. So everything was running through my mind. And all of a sudden a police van drives down the avenue. This is at two in the morning. My mum and dad's distressed in the house, you know, couldn't sleep. We, collect, we kept the vigil around Terence's bedside. Um, so, barely got any sleep, so this is going on during the night. And a guard knocks at the door. Ever so nice, can you take Gavin out the police van? He won't get out first. No, <laughs> like, baffling. I remember my eldest sister Jackie went up and they opened the back of the police van doors. And Gavin was in an awful state. Now, I'm not saying he was hit or anything, but he was so distraught mm -hmm. from what was being said to him. They took one, he had one runner on him, getting out of the police van. And we said, where's your runner? And he took her off me and said, do you want to do what your brother done to yourself? We had the police outside our house on a 24 hour basis, practically. Although there was a lot of criminality in the area, there was never police around like that. 
Biggest criminal in the country hadn't got that. You know, police stand outside the house. Remember my eldest brother Larry recorded him outside the house. And I remember a guard saying to me, I was out one night and I was on my way home. And he was real cheeky, you know, never gave the unpleasant minute. And he came up to me and he says, well, you didn't get a picture of me standing outside your house. And I took out my mobile phone. I said, I'll take a picture of you now. And he just turned his back and walked mm. off, you know. So it was, this is what you are dealing with. The morning after my brother was laid to rest, seven in the morning, my ma opened the blinds. And I always remember she had a plate or something in her hand, a bit delf. And the first thing she seen was police standing outside our door. And I remember hearing the delf smash on the ground. And I ran down to her and I was like, ma, like, what's wrong? She just couldn't get away from it. She couldn't grieve her son. My dad couldn't grieve his son. We couldn't grieve our brother, but we were a bit more able than my parents were. Um, they were after losing their child in horrible circumstances. It was, it was a year later and the eldest brother was at setting a campaign up. So we were having a demonstration, a protest at Store Street. My younger brother Gavin was going out leafletting, distributing leaflets, right outside the hall door, only walked to. And I remember that day, another family, they had lost their son in a police station mm. from the south side of the city. And they were at the meeting up with us and we were having a chat in the house. So they were there and witnessed this. So Gavin walked out with the leaflets and a guard straight away approaches him. What are you doing? And Gavin said, I'm just distributing these leaflets, which told the time and whatever of the protest and where we were meeting. Straight away tries to arrest Gavin. And my brother Larens and my dad sees this out the window and the two of them go out. They managed to get Gavin away. Then they tried to arrest my dad and my brother Larens. And out of nowhere, guards flew like the area was covered in Mariah vans, police cars, you name it, detectives. Um, they came in and swarmed the house. They built the door in. I remember my niece was treeing a buggy in the garden. She was scalded with a cup of tea. Another child ended up in Temple Street with a broken leg. My sister was six months pregnant. She got a smack of a baton on the stomach. And my mum was pushed. You know, it was ridiculous. And the other family that were there that they could not believe what they witnessed. Someone in the area recorded this on a mobile phone. Then Gavin apparently was being charged with assault in a copper. This is this was what came about this. So the solicitor made arrangements for Gavin to go to Blackrock Police Station and bring him out and whatever. So there was no cameras in, the cameras in the area won't work in that time apparently. So when she got out to the, the police station, she asked to see footage. I don't know what way it came about with them having footage, but they never actually looked over because she was shocked. She says, all I can see in this video is the Wheelock family being abused by youth. And they were shocked. 
you know? Um, so nothing ever came then of, of that. Mm. Yeah. To my mind, there was a family forced out of their home because they were trying to find out the manner in which their son died. And I can't, like, I can't step away from that. Like, I'm TD now. I've had all sorts of privileges afforded to me in life since then. But that still, for me, leaves a real rawness. Like, I know, I know Orla, I know Gavin. I was great friends with his brother Larry before he died. And I can't step away from every time seeing that family and just seeing, knowing that something terrible happened to them and wanting to help. Like, every conversation I've ever had with the Wheelock family, and I've had thousands of them at this stage, um, I've never been able, my mind has never been able to step away from the idea that what happened to this family was wrong. Like, it's literally, it blights every conversation I can have with them because, like, they were literally, they were a family who were embedded in the North Inner City community. And as a consequence of what they describe as guard harassment, and when you talk to Gavin, he was younger brother, who, was, who remembers being taken in just because he was dropping leaflets. Um, when you talk to Orla, who was called names, when you hear about the manner in which the mother was told, allegedly, that Terence had killed himself, it's when you hear about the quest he had to try just get access to evidence, it's... Like it's incredibly wrong, and I just I think the whole I think the whole community could heal if we had some answers in that regard, because they are an incredibly prominent family in the north and the city. They're incredibly well liked, and I don't think we can really have a sense of healing until we've um, addressed that family's genuine call for truth. Oh yeah, my man and dad had to move, um, like for sanity. Um, we moved to Crumlin on the south side of the area, just for peace. I was never in trouble in my life, and I was pulled in a car with my partner, and I was arrested for a drug search and brought to a police station, somewhere I was never had been ever before, mm. and it was just all part of. It was because we were fighting a case against these people. They knocked on the wrong hall door that day and thought we were going to swallow what they were telling us. Same as Harlow, I've never been in trouble myself either. I, I don't mix with drugs or what have you. But I've been pulled down for drug searches on numerous times where the only uh, tablets that would be in my pocket were medication for I'm an epileptic. Mm. And I would carry my medication with me, whatever I left. And there were moments where if I'd be walking down the street and the car pulled and they'd, they'd say, what's your name? I would give them my name. They would immediately jump out and try to check. And then they'd find the tablets in my pocket. And I would tell them specifically and utterly screaming at them, I'm an epileptic. They're my medications. I have to take them. Uh, but they wouldn't listen. So they would just bring me down to Star Street brought me up to Fiskibbon Street, brought me, even brought me to Pierce Street, just to, it was like intimidation, they knew who I was. And for each time that they had pulled me in, they would have been on my file, so to speak, if they would have had that, that I was an epileptic and that I carried medication on me, but yet they continued to do it. And it wasn't just to me, it was to all my other brothers as well, for minor things, just such as minor, but just to intimidate. I actually recall an incident one time in <coughs> and my brother Gavin was walking down Summerhill after Terence had died now. 
and guards jump out of a car and approached us and start talking to Gavin, you know, checked down his pockets, took out a key ring, Terence was on his key ring and the guards spat on that key ring and all. And like, we weren't doing anything wrong. Probably walking the shop by the chipper or something at the time, but, and then just walked off and let, let us be. So think of all of what I'm just saying, just makes you think they were in the wrong somehow, somewhere. And I suppose, probably being a bit facetious asking this, but did you ever make a complaint of harassment? That's been brought up uh, on numerous occasions by this our solicitor. She has put that in to try to get them to stop the harassment, but somehow it just seemed to continue. Okay. So at the time, as what Arla said, my parents were just forced to leave, to leave the family home where all my bro younger brothers and sisters grew up in. They were all forced to leave the place that they knew well with their friends, not just their home, their schools and what have you. They were forced to leave by what they did to my, did to my little brother. This death and all that has happened since has had a significant impact, not just on the Wheelock family, but also on the North Inner City community. Do you remember the Love Ulcer riots in Dublin in 2006? I remember when somebody even tried to blame that on the community in the North Inner City who were angry because of the death of Terence Wheelock. Um, or just, it's a constant fixture. It's constantly being brought up in different ways. And that hasn't even stopped now. There's kids in the northern city now who would be who wouldn't have even been alive back then, or if they were, they would have been babies. And they still talk about Terence Wheeler. It's just so many outstanding questions that exist in relation to this. He was an incredibly young man, and the manner in which he died in that station, and every relationship. That I, and I know every time the guard and the guards do incredible work and have done some great work in terms of building relationships in the inner city community. But I know that still hangs there like an enormously dark cloud. And I don't think we can really get over. Um, I don't think a true relationship can be, be built until we find out exactly what happened in that cell and then what happened afterwards in terms of Terence's family. The collective trauma of Terence's death has echoed through generations. I worked in, um, I used to work in one of the community development centres around the corner and with young men. And even when they'd be arrested now, they'd still be screaming at the guards, what are you going to do to me what you done to Terence Wheelock? Well, you done to Fuzzy Wheelock, they'd say. What are you going to do to me what you done to Fuzzy Wheelock? Kids now who would be 14 or 15 who would have never have met Terence still refer to his name, still talk about him. It's still embedded in you that there was a young man in the north inner city who the north inner city believes and they believe it because it hasn't been addressed and it looks like a cover-up that there was a young man murdered in a guard station. And that is such a horrendous thing for me to even hold in myself. It's And it would be to everybody's benefit. It would be to the benefit of society if this was addressed, if these questions were answered, because they can't heal without truth. Dr Jonathan Alan sees it not only as an understandable grievance in the community, but a barrier to effective policing as well. In terms of not having trust in the guards, that that would actually be, you know, I, I just thought quite quite a, a kind of a, a middling position, as it were, in that some people are, are absolutely hostile, would see the, the police as actively hostile towards them. So simply just not trusting in what they say isn't actually, you know, that high on the on the level of of reactions or perceptions of the guards that, that you would see there. 
Um, and it would be very, very difficult, I, I think, for for communities where there has been conflict with the Guardia, as I said, over a very long historical period, to uh, to believe that they're on the same side as you and, and that they are for you. Um, and yeah, that, that does make it very difficult in lots of ways to administer justice um, from a policing point of view and also from an accountability point of view. Yeah, I'm thinking about how yeah, different places have and different communities have to be policed differently in that coming into this community, the guards are going to have to recognise the barriers that exist and make go that extra 20 miles and put that extra effort in. Yeah, I think I think that's that's 100 percent correct. And, uh, you know, what, what I did see in the inner city as, as well as some is some really successful neighborhood community, neighborhood community policing um, where serious efforts were made to build inroads um, to to different people and communities to various levels of success. Um, what I observed to be particularly effective was um, a guardy who I interviewed who practiced that would talk about a human approach. Um, and and when they would they would just say, look, we talk to everyone how you know the same ways we talk to anyone else. And um, whilst there would still be what you might call institutional distrust between the community um, and 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 the institution of the guards. Uh, at that level of individuals, um, you can see different relationships um, uh, building. But I think your point is entirely correct that to bridge this kind of gap in trust that exists, there there is a need for outreach plus, for, for going those extra 20 miles, as you say. And certainly, and it's not unique to Ireland, but certainly I wonder how much police forces you know, many different kind of English-speaking countries are prepared to kind of let go of the defensiveness to recognise where things have gone wrong and to put that effort into bridging that gap. I think it's possible. I do think it is possible. There is a long way to go to resolve the adversarial relationship as it is now perceived. So it's civilians against the system. It's just basically when you've guards investigating guards and coroners, like basically everybody's in back pocket. They're all just close and it's a, it's a lose-lose situation. If I had those questions in relation to the death of my brother, I would not have been able to carry myself with the dignity that they do now. Like I can tell you that now. I or even um, I they asked me to speak down at a Star Street Guard Station a couple of months ago. Um, if they wanted it, if that family actually wanted it, they could put thousands of people outside that station every year because such is the rawness of the feeling. But what they rather say is because they know the dangers that, that might unleash is. They wanted small social gatherings. They wanted people just to come respectfully. They wanted everyone to just, not everyone, they only, they only invited a certain amount of people. They're just so dignified and they're so, um, they're so considerate when probably there's no reason for them to be in a lot of time. They have such, um, they've, the questions that they have in relation to the death of their family members are so raw 
and yet they carry themselves in such a dignified, considerate way for society, and they just want answers. They don't want this to be the inner city against the guards or anything of that nature, which it could quite easily be manipulated to be. They just think their son and their brother um, died in a manner in which so many questions remain, and all they're asking for is for those questions to be addressed. And I should say, it's not just me that support their call for a public inquiry. Politicians for the last 15 years have supported their call for a public inquiry. But I think we need to acknowledge that promises that have been made to that family. I think Dublin City Council passed a motion many years ago. Um, it's been raised on the floor of the doll. But this just can't be a call we make every year on an anniversary and then forget about it because it lingers on. We still want justice, we seek justice at home. For as long as it takes us, we will continue to try and get that justice. For not just for me, it's mainly, we want closure. That's all that we, especially for my parents. Like, I look at my parents on a daily basis and each time Terence's name comes up. You can see that my mother, in her own little way, she goes quiet. And I can see that she's still thinking about it to this day. Same as my dad. Like even my other brothers and sisters, when the name comes up, they, especially on birthdays and Christmases and things, but they always try to, to do something small just to honour their, their memories. Mm. All my parents want disclosure. It's all we want disclosure. And I think we deserve it as a family. Yeah, we, we want answers and we want, if someone is responsible for Terence's death, to be held accountable. It's 15 years now, we'll never let it rest. Till we find closure, we'll just continue on till we get somewhere. We're purposefully going to air this podcast timed with the anniversary of Terence's death. There will be people wondering how they can support you. Um, so what can people do? Obviously with COVID around at the minute, we're restricted to having large gatherings. But we are looking to go back protesting and hold um, demonstrations outside Store Street Police Station. Because we vowed to my brother when he passed that we'll never give up on him. And we won't, we won't. We can do, we will do what we can for him. We were planning at some point to, um, to hold a vigil in terms of his memory. And uh, there's gonna be other, as regards to the campaign, there'll be moments where we could be going over to, to Lancer House or the Star Street Garda station, so there will be campaign marches there and protests there. But with the COVID-19, uh, we can't do that just quite just yet. So as soon as we know, we will we will get the word out. And you have a Justice Returns We Lock Facebook page, don't you? Yeah. yeah. We do, and the support is amazing on it. You also hear privately on that page other people's dealings with the police. And some of the stories with Benetianese, it's so sad what people are going through. That page is very, very good. Um, the support we have had over the 15 years is phenomenal. People came from around the area and surrounding areas came out in force. It was amazing and it gave us comfort that other people were with us. The Alice Bridalar worked tirelessly on this campaign and to get it out there. And he's done a fantastic job, to be fair to him. He's now passed, so we just fill his boots and go on with it. Yeah.
Terence Wheelock fell seriously ill in Garda custody on the 2nd of June 2005 and died three months later. Despite an internal investigation, the inquest and a GSOC investigation, his family have a long list of doubts and questions about what happened. Rather than getting easier, that list of doubts has only been added to in the last few weeks with the return of Terence's clothing. This may feel a bit old or like something that happened over a decade ago, but for the Wheelocks, this is about now. This is about getting justice for Terence. And I hope everyone listening empathises with that need. You may assume things are better now, and I hope that this series will help you to think critically about that question. This episode raises many issues. The policing of our inner city communities, trust in the police, the blue wall of silence, and mechanisms of police accountability. Supported by numerous politicians and civil liberty groups, the Wheelock family continue their call for a public inquiry to provide answers to those questions that haunt them. There is a Justice for Terence Facebook group that you can join if you want to reach out to them. We'll continue looking at these themes a bit more next week when we hear from a young man about his experiences of being detained as a teenager. Personally, I'm honestly humbled by the dignity of the Wheelock family and by their trust in us with their story. We hope we've done justice by it. And I thank my producers, Tony Groves and Brian from Groves Ahead for their hard work on this. I thank Gary Gannon and Dr. Jonathan Alan for contributing. Please support this type of work by subscribing on patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. <laughs>